0: This is The Concast, the podcast about the Indian Constitution, the Supreme Court, and beyond. Welcome to the second episode of The Concast. Today I'm joined by Abhinav Sekri, criminal trial lawyer from Delhi and the writer of the Proof of Guilt blog, which if you aren't already reading, you definitely should be reading. Uh, Abhinav, thanks for joining me.
1: Thanks, Gautam. Thanks for having me.
0: You know, we are obviously going to spend the next one hour talking about the dysfunctional 10th schedule to the Indian Constitution and how the Supreme Court has just made it even more dysfunctional in Maharashtra. I'm nah, only joking. <laughs> we, we at some point may talk about that, but, uh, you know, yeah, not, not today, not today. Um, so as with the previous podcast, we are going to be looking back at some of the important judgments in uh, the previous month, the month of June. And uh, there are two rather important high court judgments that deal with two deeply depressing areas of Indian law. Uh, one is procedural, criminal procedural rights, right to counsel, and the second is voting rights. And we're going to be discussing both of them. So let's get uh, straight into it. The, um, the first one pertains to Satyendra Jain, the Aam Aadmi party MLA who um, was taken into custody by the uh, Enforcement Directorate, the ED, uh, towards the end of May. And uh, one, of the, one of the requests he made and the petitions he made was, uh, was to have his lawyer, his counsel, uh, in uh, present within visual range while he was being interrogated. Uh, that uh, request was declined by the High Court. And uh, Abhinav, we have written a blog post about that so maybe you can take us briefly through what the facts were and what the court held
1: yeah sure so uh, satendra so jain who is still in custody i mean he was he was shifted to a hospital in the middle satendra so jain was arrested by the enforcement directorate and during his period of custody his lawyers moved an application before the trial court Asking not for the lawyer to be present next to him and side by side or something during his questioning, but in terms of orders that are frankly passed quite often in Delhi, or making a request that the counsel be within visual range but outside of earshot, so that there is some sort of uh, how should I say this, some uh, assurance that you know both the clerk, the counsel and the client have that nothing untoward might happen. The trial court again, like I, like Gautam you already said, the trial court agreed to this request. This was challenged by the enforcement directorate before the Delhi High Court, which on, it, on the last day of its functioning, June the 3rd passed an order that, an interim order rather, not a final order, passed an interim order that granted a stay against the trial court order's uh, directions and uh, that basically meant that counsel for Satyinder Jain could not be anywhere near him during the questioning. And then ultimately it was left for them to ask him post questioning what might have happened. And for the courts and Satyinder Jain to hope that the CCTV cameras in and around the enforcement directorate offices would be functioning properly around the clock without any opportunity of uh, you know anyone else such as the enforcement directorate. Having a right to see those tapes before they went to court to make sure that nothing untoward happened to Mr. Jain in terms of how he was questioned, and uh, it was a pretty interesting order. And Gautam, if you want, I can just uh, sort of flag the one big problem that I identified in the post as well. Yeah, just just
0: before before you before you go there, uh, just one question. Yeah, so you yeah. said that these kinds of orders are passed quite frequently uh, at the trial court level. So uh, in, in that case, the high courts. Interim order declining the request. Is that unusual? And does that mean that now, so, in future cases, it will become harder for um, people to have counsel present within visible range during interrogation by bodies like the ED?
1: So, so the what made this different was the fact that this was not a police case but an enforcement directorate case. Yeah, and that actually is what the enforcement directorate really trumped uh like trumpeted during the hearings and that ultimately is something that the court fell for mm. i'm using fell for because it it's not really a distinction that holds good when you press it for, like press it further but uh, because of the fact that the court has emphasized so much that you know this is not a police case but a prosecution by the enforcement directorate i don't think that uh, the impact of this is going to go in normal police cases so it's probably going to have its impact maybe in the context of cases that are let's say brought by other central agencies let's say like the customs department or uh, right. other right. similar agencies but on regular police uh, cases i don't think it's going to be uh, it's going to be important or relevant even uh, right. okay so yeah that, and carry that on really with your is the point. It, yeah. yeah yeah and and that really is the point right so how, why is it important that the ED was the one or the Enforcement Directorate was the one that was bringing this case. Is that something that ought to have mattered so much for the court to have deviated from what it also acknowledged was, frankly, standard practice?
2: Hmm.
1: Now, the legal answer for the court was supplied by the Enforcement Directorate, relying upon a certain set of judgments that arise in context of the right against compelled self-incrimination, that is guaranteed under Article 20 sub clause 3. That no person shall be compelled to be a witness against
0: himself. No person accused of an offense will be uh, compelled to be a witness against himself.
1: Exactly. And the the critical words there being no person accused of an offense. So, within the context of Article 20, sub clause 3, there is a line of judgments that has held that this idea of who is a person, quote unquote, accused of an offense is a term of art. It's not just standard practice. And there is a line of judgments that has excluded persons that are being proceeded against by these central agencies, which don't register in a first information report or an FIR, as it is colloquially so-called rather they file a complaint. And before that complaint, they may or may not proceed criminally against a person. So a matter may not go to a criminal court till they file the complaint, but the issue there in all of those cases, was about what happens to that individual during his questioning. Mm. Not at a point when that person is actually under arrest and in custody. So Yeah, the so main you're, case, what you're saying is that,
0: that there is uh, once you are taken into custody by this department, it could be the ED or the customs department, uh, you are formally taken into custody. That is a stage that goes beyond just like mere questioning. Even before arrest, even before
1: custody, when you're arrested, so yeah. the point that, that was there to be made and was being made by his counsel was that this, this distinction between who is a person accused or not might be relevant in scenarios where I'm not under arrest. Right. But once I'm under arrest and I have been sent to police custody by orders of a court, hmm. that clearly means that my status cannot be compared with people who are merely being questioned as part of that inquiry process. Right. So that argument, unfortunately, somehow escapes the court entirely in its interim order. And it relies upon these judgments, starting with this judgment called Pool Pandi of the Supreme Court, a judgment from 1990, and continued by judgments of the Delhi High Court, uh, where again the context was not involving persons who were under arrest and then who had been remanded to custody. But persons who had been receiving summons to come and give evidence as part of an inquiry. And they feared that they might be either placed under arrest or they might be forced to give confession and statements. And therefore, they wanted their counsel present with them. Now that's the key difference, right? Once you are in custody, there is just hold on for a
2: second. go for it. Yeah.
1: So so I was saying that ultimately the, the issue that arises, which I mean, it's it's quite surprising that, you know, it, it, it's not, uh, it's not registered in the, in the court's judgment hmm. is that once you are placed under arrest, you are no longer within article 20 sub clause three, you hmm. are part of the gamut of article 22 rights that basically says that every person has a hmm. right to be defended by counsel of her choice.
0: 22 being the, the provisions that Set out the limitations upon preventive detention. Uh, yeah. So the yeah. first
1: half of 22, Article 22, sub clauses one and two, that actually applies to normal arrests,
0: mm.
1: like the procedure upon arrest and what happens after that. Yeah. 22, thereafter, sub clauses three to seven are sort of saying that three says that nothing in the above clauses will apply to preventive detention. And then yeah. four to seven go and talk about preventive detention. Yeah. So ultimately, Article 22 sub clause one is what would have been controlling the life or the fate of an individual who has been placed under arrest. 22 right. clearly says you have a right to be defended by counsel of your choice. Mm-hmm. And none of the judgments that the court relies upon in that in that order passed in Mr. satinder Jain's case, mm-hmm. engage with Article 22 at all, because none of those persons were under arrest. Yeah. So. It's it's as if you know this the main issue that you had to deal with is something that you just don't deal with. So and that kind of
0: puts these people in a kind of a legal black hole, right? Because you exactly. are neither neither do you get Article Twenty Clause Three self-incrimination rights uh, yeah. because you are know, deemed not to be an accused, and neither do you get Article Twenty Two rights because yeah. uh, you know the code doesn't apply that. Exactly,
1: right? So, so what happens and, and the mat, since the matter hasn't gone to the Supreme Court, hmm. you'll hope that when the court resumes arguments in this matter, because like we said, it was only an interim order that was passed. Hmm. Hmm. So when, when the court actually comes back to hear the matter in July or whenever it is that it decides to, unless, hmm. of course, because in a way the matter is infructuous for the hmm. for the persons in question. Yeah. So it might very well be, as we both know, that uh, the parties concerned might consent to a withdrawal of the case, keeping the question of law open, as it mm-hmm. so often happens in these cases. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. let's see. Only time will tell whether this question actually gets resolved or receives the kind of potential law to have received.
0: Yeah, and I want to. I want to just uh, you know ask you a bit about this distinction between the person who has been arrested and the person who is simply yeah. uh, being questioned. And we'll come to Pool Pandey's case in a moment. I think there are some interesting yeah. things that are, I think, very revealing of the, I think, Indian judiciary's consistent approach towards uh, people who are accused of an offence, but we'll come to that in a moment. Uh, so is, is the distinction based on a question of power, basically, that when you are under arrest, that is the moment at which the state... To, through its criminal apparatus, basically has you under its control, and the uh, distinct uh, difference in power between you as the individual and the state is, or is of a great extent and great degree. The possibilities for abusing that power, you know, are are great, and that is why there's a relevant distinction, and the procedural safeguards that you should be entitled to, uh, you know, should apply once you are arrested.
1: See, the problem is it's, this is actually something that got discussed in uh, this judgment of the Supreme Court in 1994 called uh, Deepak Mahajan. Right. And the problem is that the court even then refused to accept a consistent bright line. So I, hmm. so to just rephrase what you said and the importance hmm. of that is like just to make it clear for everyone. Basically, there are so many stages at, in, in a criminal process where the target of the process, hmm. you know, you are identifying that target. And ultimately, it might begin with a suspicion that suspicion might elevate to the level of an accusation. And mm. then it might elevate to the level of that person being arrested. Mm. And so at what stage do you recognize that, look, there are these procedural rights that accrue to you, and they are going to trigger from this moment? Do we say that they trigger from the start itself, where any person, any person who thinks they are being suspected, have hmm. the ability to pull that trigger or right. that trigger is something that is a neutral trigger that gets pulled in the occurrence of a of an event. Right. Our model is very clear. Our model is not the, like, you know, the person has the ability to pull that trigger. There is definitely a line, hmm. but the problem is there is no consistency within that. So what you are arguing that is, is the moment of arrest that, you know, critical moment. The problem is that argument has been rejected by the Supreme Court in Deepak Mahajan. similar hmm. situation where it was an arrest of uh, a person by a central agency. And that person said that look, you have to treat this logic of accused person consistently across contexts. Hmm. Like you have to basically ultimately draw a line somewhere. So is it arrest? Is it the lodging of an FIR, where I get named as an accused? Right. Is it not arrest? But is it the moment where a court after my arrest, says that, okay, this person ought to be kept in custody as well. So just to make that, that, uh, sort of link that with the law, the law is that the police have the right, frankly, to arrest anyone if they, if they have the reasonable grounds of suspicion Mm. and keep them in police custody for up to 24 hours, Mm. after which, if they think that a case ought to proceed, the police has to go to court seeking further custody Mm. or that person will be released from the police station itself. So That's a third kind of scenario, right? So it's not maybe arrest, but it is arrest post 24 hours that really sort of identifies you as an accused person for the process.
2: Hmm.
1: But the Supreme Court and Deepak Mahajan refused to buy an argument that wanted consistency across contexts and says that, you know, this logic of accusation and accused, it, it is going to be different in different contexts. So basically, if you are arrested, that automatically does not make you person accused of an offense under Article 20 sub clause three was right. the long and short of it, which is problematic at multiple levels because not only does that really short change individuals who are facing the brunt of this process, it also contributes to a lot of inconsistency across the law itself, right and for no
0: for no reason whatsoever, like there's nothing gained by doing that. So, so you're, saying, you're saying that that what we do need is a bright line, uh, you know, an objective trigger yeah. that, uh, that, you know, comes into play and then says, okay, at, at this stage of the criminal process, uh, that is when the procedural rights, the safeguards that an accused person or a person who is, you know, of interest to the criminal process and to the state can activate. Uh, and if there was that right line, where would you place it? Where where do you think it should be placed? Let me clarify. I think actually my, I think a mixture of
1: both is how the law can work. Mm. Right? So I don't think that a system that is entirely based upon identifying objective scenarios to, you know, insert uh, rather activate procedural rights can work fairly. I think the option should always exist with the individual also too actively go to court. And in some cases, you find that existing in India, just to give you an example, in bail matters, you have the Mm. ability to go surrender yourself, right?
2: Mm.
1: So with that, you can sort of trigger that process. So I'm saying Mm. that in in this idea of, of, let's say, rights of arrest or self-incrimination, if you could stick with that,
3: Mm. I
1: think in self-incrimination, the problem becomes Mm. the complete absence of a bright line. And mm. if within the limited concept of self incrimination, I think the uh, the logic has to be that the moment you are called for questioning, mm.
2: Uh, mm.
1: you have to have the ability to trigger that process yourself where right. if you and, and the logic there is simple, right? You will always know more than the police
2: mm.
1: about where you are placed. Mm. So if you are deciding to quote unquote lawyer up Mm. Then, I mean, no matter what the consequences are today, mm. it's the you know the argument that is against, let's say, extending a right to counsel in this situation is, oh wow, the probe is going to get halted because a lawyer is going to obstruct or obfuscate the process, which is mm. not the case. Mm. I mean, it happens across the world. I mean, it's it's not that investigations don't happen in in the in the United Kingdom or the EU or even in other part like in South America for for that matter. Hmm. where you do have the ability to have counsel with you even when you are called in for questioning
0: yeah yeah so i mean so I think just make sure. is a, this, so actually, this this really I think this is good because this, this takes me to the point in Pool Pandi that i want to flag yeah 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 there uh, yeah. is uh, there is so in Pool Pandi, there is this line right where they say that um, for so this is respect to this is with respect to, uh, with respect to uh, you know when the right kicks in And what the court says is the purpose of the inquiry under the Customs Act and other similar statutes will be completely frustrated if the whims of the persons in possession of useful information for the departments are allowed to prevail for achieving the object of such an inquiry. If the appropriate authorities be of the view that such person should be dissociated from the atmosphere and the company of persons who provide encouragement to them in adopting a non-cooperative attitude to the machineries of law, there cannot be any legitimate objection in depriving them of such company." Right. So, I mean, a couple of things here I want to flag, right? One is that, look, we have adopted for better or for worse, right or wrong, what is known as the adversarial system of justice, right? Where the underlying logic or belief is that when you give both sides, you know, the best possible representation and the best possible arguments, the truth will emerge from you know, a clash of those two, you know, positions. Now, this has flaws. It doesn't always work. There are imbalances of the quality of representation, all of that, right? But it is the system that we have adopted as opposed to the inquisitorial system where the state, you know, basically is is involved at every step in collecting the facts and interrogation, all of that, right? So this is a crucial distinction. What it seems to me is that the Indian judiciary... Functions like an inquisitor in an adversarial system, where the thing they're most concerned with, right, is are you cooperating with with the police and how to ensure that you cooperate with the police. But the whole point of the adversarial system is I shouldn't be obligated to uh, cooperate with the police because that is exactly where all the abuses of power come in. So I should have my, uh, my rights, my procedural safeguards they should have their you know investigations and then their you know their agencies and their uh, their processes and you know through the through this process we'll ultimately get to a point where you know the judge will adjudicate and will decide what happens um, and so so what we are getting is this worst of both worlds right where where um, we still have the the form of the adversarial system but in effect you know the rights that we have in that system are whittled down because the court doesn't seem to believe in it.
1: So it's a it's a really important comment and just one thing on that on the larger adversarial point and then we can maybe come on Pulpandi for a little bit on the larger adversarial point and I think I'm I've made this point in something that you and I are working on in terms of that uh, chapter. Yes, uh, where there is actually enough and i i i am not someone who agrees with that proposition that we have adopted an adversarial system whereas uh there is there is not much writing on it obviously to make the counter argument and that is the that is let's say the more accepted presumption that you know india inherited rather an adversarial model but everything that you look at it actually suggests that it was it did not inherit an adversarial model. Mm. So There are two levels to that argument. I don't think I need to make the first one to, to actually demonstrate that our model in its substance mm. is not as adversarial as people might make it out to seem. Mm. And there is a nice uh, article like this, probably one of the only ones I read that likens the Indian system to the inquisitorial model. So it is called, let's say that was prevailing in France at the time in the 1960s mm. that is. And mm. that comparison actually still holds good today. So I was I was reading a book on like French criminal procedure, the French criminal process. Mm. And you would be surprised as to how similar things work, right? Mm. And another great source on this is, uh, let's say, Mirjan Damashka's book on... Like, basically, what happens with, with those arguments is that if you pass through that logic, of you know what uh, uh, I don't know what you're sorry yeah so the faces of uh, state oh, okay I'm so sorry Gautam I'm not uh, <laughs> familiar with the... it just uh, no, no, it kari, very, kari. very cool no so I was I was saying that in Damashka's work what you find is that if you, if you go beyond just, you know, what the, what the legal system might look on paper, but you look at the substance of it, it mm-hmm. seems that th- there is a larger identity, let's say, of an adversarial system or a continental system. And mm-hmm. the larger identity that is there within the Indian system is actually much more like a continental setup. And mm-hmm. one of the key assumptions that is common for both and which is not true for an adversarial setup is, like you said, is this idea that you are supposed to be competing.
2: Hmm.
1: Whereas if you look at, the, and this is not something that has been sort of imported by the judiciary, this is something that has been there from the start in terms hmm. of the codes that came in and also in terms of how the uh, the British during their time and now obviously the Supreme Court itself has argued, they, uh, they look at the police not as an agency that is out to prove its version the police is out to find the truth. right? So the the idea that an objective truth can be identified, or Mm. closely approximated through the agency that is the police is something that the Indian judiciary really sticks to very closely. Mm. And given that that is one of your core assumptions, a, a, a posture of an accused that I am going to have rights that are going to obstruct this truth seeking exercise, is Mm. something that just does not fit right with this overall model. Yeah, which is why time and again, you have the judiciary coming down very heavily against persons, where it seems to them that look, you know, you can't do this, you have a duty to cooperate, you might Mm. have a right to stay silent, but you have a larger duty to cooperate so that we can all sing, dance and come to the truth at the end of the day. And yeah, and that's what I think, even though it might not be stated as often, and even though it might get blurred because you know the Indian legal system borrows a lot without really identifying exactly what it is borrowing, mm. it it ultimately creates these uh, tensions. But and, and, and I think Pulpandi is actually a great example of that. And I'll just come mm. to, like use Pulpandi as an example to make that point. Mm. Pulpandi, if you look at it, the context is critical. Pulpandi is not your regular case. T- it's not a murder, it's not a dacoity or something. It's an economic offense.
2: Mm.
1: And time and again, the Indian judiciary, you can find them you know, hand in glove with, I mean, hand in glove is actually slightly pejorative, but basically there is this synergy in visions between the judiciary and the government throughout mm. time when it comes to economic crime. When it comes to this idea that there are individuals who are actively working to weaken the economy of the state, by adopting these either sharp practices, hoarding, black marketeering, and today money laundering.
2: Mm.
1: And in the middle pool, Pandi and all these are excise cases. So, again, the logic being that these are these white collar criminals who are out to, you know, defeat the national enterprise. Mm. So, again, that, even though it's, let's say, Today, you might find the judiciary more willing to adopt an adversarial posture when it might be a normal case, like a right. blue-collar case of a, of a murder or a, or a dacoity for that matter. In these kinds of cases where there is that underlying argument of synergy, mm. it, it's, it's phenomenal as to, you know, and how often the judiciary is going to again find a way to make an argument that does not extend procedural rights. So much so I'll give you two other examples of this. Really famous interventions by the Supreme Court in context of the right to counsel itself that mm-hmm. happened in the decade prior to Pandi were through PIL jurisprudence, right? So you had you had uh, your Hussein Khatoon and you had Sukhdas, these right. two big judgments. Sukdas one, two, three, four, Hussein Arak one, two, three, four. Subdas actually has a paragraph. I don't remember which one, and I can find that maybe we can link that to the notes where they say that, you know, yes, the right to counsel should exist, but obviously not for economic offenders. Mm. So you no. have that in black. Industry. And there's no,
0: there's no, there's no reasoning. There's no reasoning. There's ever. no
1: reasoning, but just that this is just fear, that logic. This is just that yeah. deep seated belief that this ought not to be the case. Mm. So that's, that's in your right to counsel framework. If you travel further back in time, and this is before Mayor Hans George, there was another case on at uh, the idea of mens rea and, and gold smuggling and the idea of reverse burdens. I mm-hmm. will we'll again link that to the show notes. But this is uh, 1960s, right? Gold smuggling, big problem. The court identifies with the argument that you can't have a strict liability thing where you know people are going to suffer because it's so difficult to establish your innocence. Mm. But given this is the context, given this is smuggling, given how detrimental it is to the national interest of the economy, etc, 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 it is allowed. So I think from the start, till today where we are and right now we're in june and where next month the like all the litigation community at least the economic offender community and
0: you know, <laughs> waiting
1: for the supreme court to deal uh, to deliver that judgment in the pmla batch of
0: Manchester. Yeah, we're going, to, we're going to have you back on this podcast by the way when that comes <laughs> up so, so be, be prepared so, like the day after it comes up we'll, we'll have a pod on that but go on yeah
1: yeah so so we're, we're there right and and actually i think that even if some people might be speculating as to what might happen I think the larger history of how economic crime is dealt with in not only procedural law and procedural rights but also some matters of substantive law I think a lot of the conclusions of the judgment you I I can uh, imagine what they might be if uh, if the larger trends of the Indian judiciary are something to go by
0: Sure, you know, and I, you know, I mean, I think we'll listening to you, what I'm reminded of, and you know, you, you'd know this better, is that what you're talking about seems very similar to what the judiciary does in uh, national security and terrorism, special statutes for criminal Absolutely. cases, um, where it's basically a black hole, right? So. There is a set of it's what Ujjwal uh, Kumar Singh calls the bleeding over of the state of exception and the state of normalcy, where you don't have yeah. an emergency, you don't have a you know you don't have a uh, you don't have a formal declaration of a state of exception, but there are certain domains of law that seem to be in a permanent state of exception. One of them being economic offences, one of them being national security laws, and that's where you know it's a black hole where rights don't apply. And what really struck me was when I was reading Pulpandi, uh, you know, after you mentioned it in the blog, uh, there is this uh, there is this line, let me see if I can... Um, yeah, yeah, here. Yeah. So the line is that the relevant provisions of the constitution in this regard have to be construed in the spirit they were made and the benefits thereunder under should not be expanded to favor exploiters engaged in tax evasion at the cost of there public so the public the assumption there is that uh, somebody who is being called in for questioning is presumptively guilty, right? It's presumptively an exploiter exactly. engaging in tax evasion. And you don't want that person to be taking undue advantage of uh, you know of, of the, of the legislation of legislation and rights. What is missing is is even the acknowledgement of the possibility that maybe they've got the wrong man. You know, <laughs> maybe they've got the wrong man who's innocent. And and th- and that's the person whom the right the, the law is designed to 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 protect. Um and that reminds me of, of Kartar Singh, the Tada case. Where again, yeah. when when the when the debate was about uh, you know the right to uh, cross examination, if I remember correctly, it was one of the issues in that case, um, and to confront the witness, and there uh, the Supreme Court again said that this is fine because all these terrorists and bombers, you know, um, will uh, will intimidate the witnesses, and so it's fine to just have this blanket bar. Again, Absolutely. the assumption being that once you're an accused in the dock, you know, once you're, once you once you're there. Uh, then the presumption is you're guilty you know and 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 the the standpoint of the law is that whoever the police gets is guilty and the and and the and the, and the judiciary's task is to make sure that the law is not misused or abused by the guilty person um, and you know whatever happens to innocent people is kind of collateral damage in that whole unfortunate situation right yeah. Yeah, so I mean, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. I don't know if uh, you noted, know, again, again, we have all this rhetoric, you know, central proven guilty, which, which it, in itself obviously has been reversed in many areas of law. But, uh, you know, the Supreme Court's and the judiciary's attitude doesn't seem to suggest they respect that that principle, because they also respect the law from the perspective of, of the fact that, um, you know, the person who is coming to them, claiming a right, is in all likelihood guilty and is an exploiter, uh, and yeah. therefore should be dealt with accordingly. Exactly.
1: I mean, it's it's sort of, and I think I'm jumping the gun a little bit, but at, at sometimes I think the court has not been able to help itself. Hmm. And uh, as we saw very recently, where phenomenally, uh, you know, there is parts of a Supreme Court order has found itself in an FIR.
0: We will come to that in a moment. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, I mean, well, so... You know, yeah. We, we so we'll we carry on this conversation. I think I'm, I'm sure we'll have we'll have more opportunities to talk about. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's not going to stop anytime soon. Um, I, want to, I want to move on to another another case, and uh, which another case that also involved, you know, a politician a member um, a member of the legislature, also involved a member of the legislature not from the ruling party, also involved a court case where that person did not get relief. Uh, you know, and and I, I do. I mean, again, it really i'm just thinking of how a, an external observer looks at this right like in, in in the same month you have you have two situations where you know members of opposition parties who are in jail right who are in jail come to court claiming a procedural right and they are denied and you know it, does, it doesn't look very good but anyway coming on to this case uh, so nawab malik uh, you know is, is in jail again uh, you know it's it's an ad case um, and and he says that he you know he should be let out for a day under supervision to uh, be able to vote. If first, it's for the Rajya Sabha um, election, and and then it's for the MLC election. And in both cases, it's it's denied. It's first denied by the trial court, um, and it's then uh, denied by the high court, and then by the Supreme Court. Supreme Court you no know, declines to interfere. We, we know what that means. Um, so <laughs> the uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, so the the key section is Section sixty two clause five of the Representation of Peoples of People Act, which is you know the umbrella legislation governing voting which says that no person shall vote at an election if he is confined in prison, whether under a sentence of imprisonment or transportation or otherwise, or is in lawful custody of the police, provided that nothing in this subsection shall apply to a person subjected to a preventive detention law. So that is yeah. the text of the section. There are two things here. All right? One is that the argument made was that what this section actually talks about is people who are physically, you know, if you're if you're physically in prison, Right, uh, then you, you can't really vote in prison. So you can't really make a claim for setting up like polling booths and so on in custody or in prison. It doesn't really prohibit you, know, you making an application to be released so that you can go and vote. That was, that was one argument made, So a you know, statutory construction argument. Um, yeah. And the uh, second argument was that um, when you're talking about voting in Rajasava election or the MLT election, you're not really voting for yourself. You're representing your constituency, right? So, you know, you as a as an elected le- member of the legislature, for these votes, uh, you are uh, you are casting a vote on behalf of, you know, exactly. your, your yeah. constituency and none of them are in jail, right? So you should be allowed to do that. And both these arguments are rejected. And there are a few things here that I think are worth highlighting. Uh, the first is that... Uh, the uh, special court uh, which is the first court to deny the, the request so it treats section 62 of the representation of people act people act as an absolute bar um, so it, it it picks the interpretation that it also excludes under trials per se you know so it it, 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 it it the moment you are in jail or in custody you lose the right altogether it's not that you can't if you can't physically vote you can not ask for it to be brought to you but you just lose the right altogether And to justify that, it says that the right to vote is a statutory right and not a constitutional uh, or a fundamental right. Right. Now, this is, to me, one of the most bizarre and bizarrely depressing parts of our judicial history. But Uh, it's coming
1: from the Supreme Court itself, no? Yeah, so I'm coming
0: to that, right? So I'm coming to that, right? So this is exactly where this is history. So the 1950s is the first time when the Supreme Court says that the right to vote is a statutory right and not a fundamental right. Um, It does so on the basis that The fundamental rights chapter does not explicitly guarantee a right to vote, ignoring the fact that Article, you know, in the 320s, there are provisions that specify that elections will have to be on universal suffrage. There is a right, but yeah, it ignores that. You know, it then consistently has that position for the next 30, 40 years. Um, Menaka Gandhi comes along that uh, gives us a panoply of rights under Article 21. We have all kinds of rights, apparently, right to sleep, right to, I don't know, you know, you know know what it is, right? Right (laughs) to everything. But we somehow still don't have a right to vote under Article 21, right? So we have everything that has been given to us. But still, voting somehow, the most fundamental uh, (laughs) democratic right is, is still, the Supreme Court doesn't see fit to read that into Article 21, which is supposed to be a repository of everything in life, right? So that is one instance of, you know... Yeah, it seems to me a little inconsistent, uh, and the second is then that when it comes to really irrelevant things like NOTA, for example, right? So to yeah. to direct or to command NOTA to come into play, Supreme Court says actually the right to vote might be statutory, but there is a freedom to vote under Article 191A. Voting is a political expression, so you know it's 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 a right guaranteed under Article 191A. So we say, fantastic, great. I mean, finally you have seen the light. Uh, you've actually found a way, a good, a good interpretive way to read in the right to vote into the constitution, which is something you should have done decades ago, better, better late than never, right? <laughs> Except that when it after that, when it comes to actually people saying to the court, look, we can't vote. You know, our, our literal right <laughs> to vote is, is being infringed court says oh sorry statutory right not fundamental right you know and it's just this kind of of flip flopping inconsistency this kind of really self-serving stuff that it is really infuriating right because um, you first say yeah fundamental freedom to vote and then when it comes to applying it to an actual person whose actual right is being infringed you just like pretend you never said that uh, and then you still go around saying, you know, we are this progressive court that does all these great things and brings all these rights in. Uh, but when you read the final order, that right is nowhere to be seen. So, you know, the Rajbala case where educational requirements for people standing for elections, uh, you know, that was upheld, ignoring the fact that there was all these judgments saying it's a fundamental freedom. And now you have this um, this, um, these special court, high court and Supreme court, again, you know, effectively denying, not denying that right. Right. Um, the, and the second part is that uh, this um, um, the High Court High Court refused uh, was the High Court said one of the things the High Court said and I think maybe you can throw some light on this is that they said that actually uh, this is an application for bail so the argument being made by Malik you know, <laughs> was that we're not applying for bail we're asking you to enforce our constitutional right to vote by letting us out for one day under police supervision and then going to vote. High Court says actually, this is really in truth an application for bail. So go back to the regular procedures for applying for bail. Um, now, I mean, again, it seems to be to me, you know, on the one hand, you know, judiciary is like procedure is the so called, I hate the word, but handmaiden of justice. You know, we step in and we, you know, to to ensure substantive justice, we will override all kinds of. Procedure, including today, overriding the speaker's uh, discretion to, to, you know, uh, conduct uh, proceedings <laughs> in the house. But somehow, like at odd times, the the court just remembers that there is something called procedure. You know, like what what's happening here? You know, like what do you think of this uh, this whole bail argument the High Court makes?
1: I mean, I think the bail. I, I think in this context, it's really interesting the statutory construction okay. argument was being made largely because the 62-5 route, right, has been blocked to any person because of the Supreme Court having upheld the constitutional validity of this denial of the right to vote to accused persons and persons of preventive detention, like suffering preventive detention. And I'll just take two minutes on that, because I think there's an interesting history there. And it's a 1997 decision of, I mean, it's an article 32 challenge, which is you you don't see too much in the petition, but to the best of my knowledge, I think it was a PIL that was brought hmm. in Anukul Chandra Pradhan versus Union of yes. India. Yes. Anukul Chandra Pradhan is an advocate, I think, who is now a senior advocate. The respondents included uh, the now Supreme Court Justice A.M. Khan-Milkar for the Election hmm. Commission of India. Oh, I see. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, the, A bench of the Supreme Court, this, it was, I believe, a three judge bench, including the Mm CJI. Again, like you said, relied upon this idea that it's just a statutory right and therefore did not even involve Article 21. Yeah. In a challenge that was, you know, right up there for the taking. If, Mm If something is as fundamental as the right to vote, then why should an under trial, and this is not even a convict, just merely because you are in prison? So in yeah. let's say other jurisdictions, what happens, and this is a this is a raging debate in the United States in various parts of the United States, in the concept of disenfranchisement. And mm. and it links back philosophically to this idea that your criminal conviction sort of completes your othering from society.
3: Yeah. yeah. And
1: therefore, the 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 idea of you being a member of society or, mm. or, or part of the as a citizen, mm. you do not deserve these rights anymore. And therefore, mm. by virtue of your conviction, you will be disenfranchised. Yeah. But here, Even that philosophical argument does not stand because all that has changed is your status, where yes. you are no longer at liberty, you are in custody.
2: Mm.
1: But your presumption of innocence still holds good. Mm. In spite of all of this, the court without engaging with anything, but simply agreeing with that logic that it's a statutory right and not a fundamental right, said that it's a reasonable classification because people are detained. Hmm. I mean, I, I really fail to understand that.
0: And that's a, it's like a tautology. I mean, you know, if people are detained, exactly. that's the classification, but you know, like, what is the, you know, what is the actual distinction? You know, it's, it's a bit like exactly, saying that right? I will jail all people with blue eyes and the court is like, yeah, yeah. blue eyes, blue eyes, classification. Yeah, that's right, yeah. go on. Yeah
1: i don't need to, like you said so i don't need to interfere with this exercise of discretion <laughs> made by another authority so uh, so on that because of this they made this novel argument that look my status of being an under trial is something that is there but what matters is where i am mm. right yeah i think if the court would have engaged with that argument there was something of interest there because i think if you want to argue it both ways you can really say that that construction may not hold good. Because mm. if the idea is that if you are confined in a prison or is in the lawful custody of the police, even mm. if you are on bail, yeah. you are still in the custody of the court or yeah. of the police yeah. for that day. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. In fact, I don't think the court was wrong in the sense that if they would have applied for bail,
2: mm.
3: the
1: only way that they could have gotten this right is that, see, and this just read out 625, Mm-hmm. Just that one clause which says no person shall have, uh, shall vote at any election if he's confined in a prison,
2: mm-hmm.
1: whether under a sentence or otherwise, or is in the lawful custody of the police.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, if you are being released only for a day, that release is going to be within the custody of the police. Of course. For that immediate yeah. purpose.
2: Yeah.
3: Because yeah. you
1: will be sent under escort, etc., etc. So. Mm-hmm even though you're logically, so only in bail does your custody end up being of the court.
2: Hmm. Hmm. So
1: bail as a logic essentially means that you are still at liberty, but hmm. at, at a fundamental level, you are not at liberty entirely because you are still within the court's custody, you have yes. executed bail court, then so you have given court a guarantee that I will appear when you ask me to appear. Yes, But 625 does not refer to custody of the court. Hmm.
0: Which hmm. is why ah, people on bail, they right. still have a right.
1: Right. So yeah, in fact, if they would have applied for bail, even interim bail,
2: mm-hmm.
1: that I would think that that they would have they, the court could have dismissed this petition by saying that look, 62.5 would still act as a barrier
2: right. unless
1: yeah. you ask for interim yeah. bail. Correct. And then on Correct. interim bail you decide. But mm-hmm. here, they they never argued interim bail. They only yeah. argued on their idea of a right to vote. And the court therefore didn't get into the argument of,
2: hmm. is
1: your right to vote a good enough reason to grant you interim grant bail? Yeah. So that would have again been an interesting question because right now you don't, base, bail and interim bail are entirely concepts of judicial discretion.
3: Yeah. 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 So
1: today, let's say if you have a medical uh, reason to exit like custody mm-hmm. for let's say one month, two months, courts will grant interim bail even for that yeah. much. Yeah, yeah, but this question therefore you can argue that it's still open for you know the next matter to come up whether
0: exercising franchise
1: is mm. a good reason for persons to be granted interim bail.
0: yeah I mean I yeah the Supreme Court apparently orally observed this time that it seemed that 62.5 was undemocratic you know I don't know the <laughs> thing, but you know apparently observed that but no I, yeah I get I get you I mean I, you know my my final thing on this is I think that I was reading the Supreme Court judgment on this point. Um, you know, and it, it, one observation leapt out at me. So again, they were facing the face with this interpretive argument that actually you know uh, you have to look at it as just being in physical custody and not, and so I' so limited to that reading. And the court says,, uh, we can't do that. We will look at only what the law says. we can't go beyond that. And I was just thinking, in a certain case that we all know very well, there was a word called uh, consultation in an article called 124, which you read as concurrence, right? Uh, and created a certain institution called the Collegium. In another very famous case, there was a phrase called procedure established by law, which you read as due process. And you know, you know what happened after that. Now suddenly you can yeah. really look at the text and like again is as I said it's, I, you know I it would be okay if there was. If the court was uniformly con- conservative across domains, you know, if it was uniformly textualist, uniformly hypertechnical, uniformly mechanical, you're like, fine, you know, we, we know what we get, we will argue, we will argue, we will frame our cases, we will draft our petitions in the knowledge that this is your philosophy. You know, we, and you have a right, you are the court, you have a right to a philosophy, right? So, so we will go by that. But yeah, as I said, what really infuriating is that. You're doing one thing, another thing. No one knows when you take it into your minds to to completely switch your philosophy. And yeah, it's 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 not how a judicial institution, you know, really can you know establish a certain kind of consistency over time. It really then becomes a you know who's the judge. Yeah, which of course it, that legal strategy is always looking at that, but this it takes it to a a certain kind of um, a, a limit, which I think really brings me to the the final case and we have about 10 minutes left to talk about that uh, which is uh, the
1: oh, yeah. uh, I just wanted yeah. to make a quip there yeah. yeah, yeah. I've yeah. i am been holding it in. because basically yeah. that I mean if an individual can contain multitudes and therefore contradictions the polyvocal vocal like ours is obviously going to uh, result in sure. enormous sure. multitudes sure. sure sure Sure. the problem uh, being that some of them end up being slightly uh Complicated at times.
0: Yeah, and it's, it's it's also that the multitudes somehow always end up curtailing the rights you know. of individual, right? Yeah, so so that that's the problem. Yeah. If your if your multitudes yeah. were expanding rights, you know, would be like, fine, have your multitudes, but uh, somehow it always ends up as as you know someone getting jailed and uh, you know, um, yeah, and so on. Um, yeah, so I mean, we have around ten minutes to, to talk about the the final case, which is of course, you know, everyone knows about this one. Um, it's um, it's the case uh, involving the petition to reopen or set aside the uh, SIT report that had exonerated, uh, you know, high-level functionaries of the uh, Gujarat government of conspiracy in the Gujarat riots. So, you know, I have some a couple of points to make about this. But before that, on the substance of it, right? So, this came to court as something called a protest petition, which is pretty much uh, you know a unique thing that our courts have developed so maybe you can tell us a little bit about what a protest petition is and in this case what standards were applied to review you know or adjudicate given that this was filed as a protest petition
1: yeah no, no sure and I, the problem became in this case uh, and i i recently only read it uh, and the problem became that you know this unique procedure met an even more unique procedure created specifically for these cases. So on, mm. on, on, on the protest petition, basically the idea being that look, in a case that is investigated by the police, uh, the Supreme Court itself actually in the mid 1980s recognized that look, the, the the magistrate has always had the option to disagree with the conclusions that a police might arrive at at the end of its investigation. So even where a police officer says, we should prosecute this person, the magistrate has independent judicial discretion to disagree and say, no, there is not enough. This case should not go ahead. It will be a waste of time or resources, etc. Now, that had been the law since donkey's years. But in the mid 1980s, the Supreme Court said that, look, it's not enough for this just to be there. How do we make the victim a part of this process? Because ultimately, you know, everyone started to recognize that without representation, the, the court would not be actively you know, assisted by a person or by the side that was there to show what might be lacking, let's say, in the police investigation. So uh, the Supreme Court gives its imprimatur to this protest petition logic most clearly in the 19, mid-1980s. The logic itself, and I had written about this a long time ago, it actually is something that is part of the system, even from before independence. So it was something that was called a Narazi petition way back when, where, mm. you know, at the, at the level of local high courts, you find these cases that are talking about Narazi, Narazi petition, Narazi mm. petition, And what is a Narazi petition?
0: Right. Lovely, lovely name, by the way.
1: That's a fantastic name.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Exactly. And so so you had this even back then. It's just that what the Supreme Court did, which was a game changer in a sense, was that the Supreme Court said that at the filing of a closure, right, so when the police says that we're going to close this case, hmm. you have to by law issue notice to the informant or the victim. Hmm. And that was very important because, again, it's it's meaningless to have this right if you're not clued into the process. Yeah. The Supreme Court then, by virtue of a three-judge bench decision in Bhagwan Singh's case, said mm. that no, at the time of the closure being filed, the victim has to be heard. Mm. So you therefore created a clear opportunity to file that Narazi petition. Now, mm. what, a, what that protest petition largely does is, it basically is asking the court to do two things. Either disagree with the police for the reasons that are made out in that protest petition, mm. and take cognizance and proceed on the basis of the material that the police has got. Yeah. Right? So that's one. Number two, disregard, like whatever has happened, you keep it. But I am telling you that there is more to happen. So you don't accept the closure and direct the further investigation. That's mm. number two. And the third, that this, these are usually the three prayers that you find in a protest petition. The third is that you treat my protest petition as a separate complaint. Yeah. And again, so in Indian law, what happens is that you have a right to prosecute a case in your capacity as an individual. Hmm. And so in a protest petition, your third prayer usually is that you ask the court that look fine, the police has closed it. That's fine. There is enough material. You treat my protest petition as a complaint. I will show you Hmm. that there is here enough material to prosecute this case. So you start it. And then if you want to dismiss it as a complaint, you will do it. What happened in this case, and at least this, this is what I was able to understand. Again, I might be wrong, given that I've only read it very quickly. It seems that this, this protest. so the cases happened first in 2002, then a complaint came to be filed in 2006 and was not really acted upon. And mm. then that complaint reached the Supreme Court at a time when it was constituting the SITs. It right. passed a direction for the SIT to also quote-unquote look into the allegations in this complaint. Yeah. That SIT filed a closure in 2011. That is what the complainant challenges in a protest mm. petition
2: mm.
1: and loses in the, 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 pro, the closure gets accepted. The protest is not accepted. The closure mm. report is what is accepted. The High Court, there is a revision petition filed. The High Court dismisses that revision. Mm-hmm. And then ultimately, you reach the Supreme Court. Now, what yeah. the Supreme Court interestingly said, because one of the arguments that was made was this that look in a protest petition, treat it as a normal complaint, and you start the process for a complaint. Like, why was that not agreed upon? Right. And there the Supreme Court interestingly says that look, this was not a case that was following the normal CRPC process. Right which is really interesting, right? Because it it effectively says now to the parties that look, you all had agreed that we were following this slightly strange procedure that we had cooked up as we went along, because at that point in time, everyone believed that it is doing justice.
2: Mm. Mm.
1: But everyone also agreed that it was a clear departure from the established procedure. Yeah, it was not the established procedure. So therefore, today you are stopped from now trying to go back to that regular procedure there were only two things that could have happened either you convince the court that this closure ought to be disregarded or you convince the court on further investigation that is it so this could not have been treated as a complaint
0: yeah but I guess, I I guess I, my question on multiple yeah, levels. My, my, yeah my question there i think just like maybe you can just view it into your response is that so you yeah. dispensed with the crpc right um, you have yeah. this 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 autonomous procedure right uh, that that is going on so, in on what basis or what standards or principles, right, is the court then adjudicating upon this this petition? If it doesn't have, you know, kind of a say, objective set of standards to go by. No, absolutely. And so, two levels on that. The, the protest petition
1: is actually not part of the CRPC to begin with. Exactly. So you are you are at the first level itself dealing with an autonomous procedure that you yourself created some years ago, or at least stamped and some years ago as, you know, being the right thing to, to do, mm. then now you created a process for this case to proceed in a certain way. And that's what again and again happens in these cases where the Supreme Court creates rights, right, mm. where you don't identify a procedure to, it, to its entirety. And therefore, it gives the Supreme Court or any court for that matter, a legal room to do frankly, whatever it feels like. Without it's an expansion of, expansion
0: of judicial power without exactly checks that come with it. Yeah.
1: Exactly. So I'm saying there are... So when it happens in other... And I'm saying this is the same side of the coin and let's say the PIL jurisprudence... I was was just going to say that. Yeah, I was just going to say that.
0: Yeah, yeah. so
1: it's the same side of the coin where ultimately that is also happening unprincipled in an unprincipled manner where you don't really know in what cases it can happen, it shouldn't happen. So ultimately it's down to the specific judge who is dealing with the matter. Like we saw in Kulpandi's case to yes. issue a diatribe about individuals who are systematically out to ruin the economy, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera.
3: Mm. And
1: so, therefore, in this kind of a case, where you know it is down to the court then to do whatever it wanted to do in terms of the procedure that it itself had created. Right. Eleven, right. I mean, seventeen years ago now. Mm. What, mm. fifteen years ago now?
2: Mm. So
1: ultimately, that was that was a little peculiar, but again. The, the case itself has followed a peculiar procedural history, so I guess it's part of
0: the course that way. It's sui generis in a certain way in our, in our in our like legal history and our, our criminal yeah. criminal history. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, yeah. So you know, I I think this point about expansion of judicial power is something that that I was going to. It's a, it's a good segue into what I wanted to say about you know certain observations that have obviously done, been doing the rounds. Uh, you know, we can probably close on that. Um, which is of course the observations, you know, made by the by the bench, that um, that there has been manipulation of you know the emotions of the main petitioner, and the, this was done with ulterior motives to keep the pot boiling, and that action should be taken, you know, in accordance uh, in accordance with law, and then that of yeah. course that paragraph finds mention in the FIR that the Gujarat police, you know. Uh, has the next day, and on the basis of which they they arrest uh, uh, this uh, IPS officer Srikumar and Tista Settulwar, and who are now in jail. And I think again there are a few issues here, right? Uh, one is that, of course, malicious prosecution is a common law concept, right? So that that is a thing, but it's pretty weird when the basis of what is effectively a malicious prosecution complaint, taking it on its own terms is a constitutional court adjudicating what is basically, I mean protest petition, but it is the form is of, of kind of writ proceedings, right? Like a constitutional case effectively. Um, and in the process of, of adjudicating that that case uh, without actually considering evidence uh, of this specific malicious prosecution bit, without giving the people a chance to present their case, uh, without hearing them, uh, it just like issues a broadside, uh, which then becomes the basis of a, of a criminal complaint, uh, which is you know I think a very very responsible because you're making what are effectively very factual claims that you know this that they that intentionally you know gave wrong information, misled stuff, and so on. As the highest court, you know you can't uh, you can't be saying that kind of stuff um, as if it was like a WhatsApp forward because you're not a person, you know, who has your phone and is is, is, is creating outside WhatsApp forward, but the Supreme Court, on the basis of whose pronouncements, all of the state machinery can be set into action. So in that sense, it, it's an even greater obligation upon you to watch your words. And it also strikes me that, that historically, right, and people have made the point that there has never been accountability in our history for riots, right? Now, there never been any accountability at the state level. And so the courts have always failed in that regard. What I have noticed is that that's obviously true. But what the courts normally do is that if they find that there's not enough evidence, if there's not enough you know um, stuff there to to hold authorities accountable and if they're holding against whoever's filed the case, they, they're pretty careful to really couch their judgment in very neutral terms, right So it's, it's not meant to be it's meant to be a verdict on the case. And specifically, given the politically fraught nature of the case and the the kind of case it is, you are meant to limit yourself to that. You're not meant to turn it into a referendum or a verdict on the people who are involved in the case. Uh, And normally the court doesn't do that. And and this is, again, something new in that for me, it's the first time that that the court has has done this, where it's actually uh, in this kind of a case involving riots that led to, you know, mass death. Um, very serious uh, issues. It's it's gone after the petitioners in this way, uh, you know. And in a certain sense, you know, I I was I was fourteen. I think I was, yeah, I was I was fourteen years old when the Gujarat riots happened. You know, it's still something that you remember, uh, given the number of people who died. These are all very serious things, you know. And and in that context, to to uh, come up with statements like. People in the air-conditioned rooms, you know, are, you know, have no idea what's happening on the ground. Again, a very, very common common WhatsApp trope is ultimately just very immature of the court. You know, it is surprising and, and saddening to see. Um, but I think to tie it back into your point, this is the result of, of a certain kind of expanded judicial power over the last 30, 40 years that began with PILs. So this idea that the case can be about one thing, but you as the court can make it into something totally different and yeah, there is no constraint yeah. upon you or what you're doing that's a PIL innovation right and that's what we are reckoning with now and I think something that we need to, uh, to 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 start talking about and because I, I still see despite all this I still see people not making this connection um, and the really core point right is that what people forget, is that procedural constraints, procedural safeguards, requirements of standing locus, you know, deciding cases on narrow grounds, not touching constitutional questions unless you have to, framing remedies to fit the case, all of that, right? People keep looking at them as things that stand in the way of the court doing justice, but what people forget is that that procedural safeguards not only protect you from the state, they also protect you from the court, right? So they they, they protect you from well, the court, 100%. yeah. And 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 like and in a democracy, we need protection from anybody that we inspire. And in in the case of the executive legislature, right? The rights, there are elections, there are courts, review, and so on. In the case of courts, what is saving us from or protecting us from courts is legal reasoning as a kind of disciplining force. Right and all these procedural like constraints that hedge in what courts can do, um, and when you junk all of this and when you discard all of this in the quest for greater justice, it's all very nice when the courts are on your side. Um, when they're not, you've just lost, you know, you've just lost your protection, which I think is what we are facing now, and that's something that we need to have a conversation about. I think.
1: No, I, I fully agree with you Gautam. I mean, there are more. There are, uh, you know. Other examples of this that have been seen, but maybe they don't get as much attention because it concerns a very small community. I mean, one example being, for instance, the suo proceeding started by a high court regarding comments about judges on social media. I mean, mm. it's it's a different thing, but again, it, it, the underlying the, the underlying connection of you know the expansion of judicial power is mm. is right there for the taking, where you can do whatever it is that you felt like. Mm. There are no. There, it's it's literally like a no-holes-barred sort of scenario, mm. and mm. and in this context, I think one one point legally also that uh, you know is is there to be made is that in in this and it links back to something that you actually said is that when you're dealing with something like this, when you're talking about a closure, not everything in that in that closure is because that you know, you have found that the allegation was false. Some allegations, Mm -hmm. they have said that we have found material that suggests that these allegations are false. Mm -hmm. For other things, they have actually found material, but they have not been able to substantiate it because, you know, stuff has gone away with time or people are no longer alive or people are no longer there to give their evidence. Now, in that case, again, like you said, there is that level of, you know, this this restraint that ought to ordinarily accompany mm. conclusions because you know mm. that this is not mm. this is not mm. a conviction or an acquittal this is for for whatever it's worth it was a preliminary stage
2: mm. Mm. it's
1: not the conclusion of a trial that has led to this it is the mm. conclusion of an investigation
2: mm. and the mm.
1: same way that a conclusion of an investigation is treated at best as to show suspicion when mm. you are starting a trial the same way that Ought to have been seen when you are looking at it from this other lens of okay, allegations against individuals, let's say who have uh, you know started the case. Hmm. So I, I, I sensed a little like a, a big contradiction there in terms hmm. where you know where when it came to I for convenience let's just say the accusers when it comes to the accusers these these investigative findings become as good as conclusions. That are at the end of a good pro- like a trial yeah, yeah. yeah. But when it comes to the process itself, like the accused persons who they're supposed to be dealing with, the court mm. was very mindful of, you know, the the limited nature of scrutiny that was required at that stage. And it it just didn't make sense, like, you know, exactly what was going on in mm. in the mind of the in in, in the opinion where and, and like, like you said, like, you know, because of this expansion of judicial power, it, it perverts the process where tomorrow, which court is going to be uh, yeah. there to stand up against observations that are made in the judgment yeah. by the Supreme Court of India. Yeah. I mean, yeah. 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 It's, these are real world consequences and ultimately, it, I mean, they have, real world, they have real world consequences. I guess that's all that I can say.
0: Yeah, well, that was the thing, right? I mean, it, it's it's is that's what you have when you that's what you see when you see this again. All of this, those paragraphs are basically WhatsApp language. Something I've seen repeatedly in WhatsApp groups, right? And uh, this ex- yeah. and this this kind of uh, air condition, this that I've seen them in, in multiple WhatsApp from WhatsApp groups. Yeah. Except that you know you can fight and all that over there, but these words just carry so much more salience when they come from the body that is tasked with you know. Being the highest legal body in in in, uh, in the country, uh, which is something that they, they don't seem to you know particularly yeah I don't know be aware of or or just you know doesn't register with them. Do you I don't know, know.
1: where uh, air conditioned was elsewhere also. No, it was also part of the Delhi Police's uh, charge sheet in, in the Delhi riots matter. So there was oh, the I, logic I I of didn't, I air. didn't
0: know that, but, uh, but it does seem to be like a fairly common trope that you know <laughs> yeah. across across various interesting forums. Um, yeah. yeah, I think I think we are we are out of time. Uh, this is this, this yeah. has been a lot. I, yeah, I saw this, uh, that, yeah. podcast has been a lot. Like I don't know, um, you know the the band on the Titanic, you know um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> playing playing their violins huh? as, the, as the ship goes down. Uh, but uh, you yeah. no, I mean, I I wish I wish there was I wish there was something more optimistic we could have said, um, but uh, factors is there isn't. Uh, though of course, I mean, I, you know, I I don't know about you. I'm 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 always optimistic about uh, about the future. Because, uh, you know, I, I've seen, I mean, I specifically mean legal futures in a certain way, because, you know, I think other jurisdictions have um, had situations where things have been bad with respect to procedural rights safeguards yeah. and so on. And they've, they've come out of it. And I, I remember that I was recently complaining to a Kenyan friend, you know, about <laughs> various issues with respect to rights and so on. And the Kenyan friend told me that, look, this is where we were in 1980s. <laughs> and, you know, and and just for reference are much better off now uh so yeah. so I think that yeah this has cycles and and I think our, our job as as legal observers in our capacity as legal observers you know of course uh the different job as practitioners and so on is, is to just make sure that uh, we chronicle them as accurately as we can which is the effort in this yeah. podcast so uh, thanks a lot for for joining me Abhinav we're going to get oh, you my back pleasure, here Robin. thanks for having me yeah. We're going to get you back here for PMLA, so don't think we've seen the last of you. And uh, and everyone, please please go and subscribe and read uh, proofofguiltblockspot.com. Um, uh, so until next time, thank you. And thanks for joining us. Thanks,
1: Gautam. Thanks, everyone.
0: Thank you for listening to The Concast, the podcast about the Indian Constitution, the Supreme Court, and beyond. This podcast is hosted by the Indian Constitutional Law and Philosophy blog. So if you liked it, do head over there and subscribe. Thank you once again and until next time, take it easy.